It's Cinco de Mayo, Wednesday, May 5th, and you are listening to the 41st episode of the Combing the Stacks podcast, or CTS is shorthand. Whether you're a first-timer, a long-timer, or a filthy casual, we'd like to welcome you to the warm confines of the show. I can tell you it's going to be a live one tonight based on the pre-show banter, uh, but let's do some introductions first. I am uh, the self-proclaimed chairman of the board and the governor of the estate, New Jersey's favorite son, John. And I am joined with the man who is sunshine with a little bit of hurricane, the storm and the calm after it, and the man who is savage in a world full of average, big money mad himself. Arriba, muchachos! <laughs> was that was that Seco de Mayo-esque, Josh? Was that okay? Cold? Sure, sure. I, that yeah. It's really only a holiday that's celebrated in America. No, it's so. true. It's true. I worked in, actually, I worked in a Mexican restaurant uh, as that's a true. waiter when I was in grad school with you guys and mm-hmm. uh, i remember asking them this once the the cooks were all they were all great guys all um from mexico and i asked them i was like hey what's the significance of cinco de mayo and they're like nothing it's a gringo holiday <laughs> they're like you guys made it up there's nothing but bar it, tabs but, yeah. but yeah, always it always got us the biggest business the cinco de yep. mayo nights were insane for tips because uh, it was just they wine was as, out the door they sell as much beer for cinco de mayo as they do the super bowl Wow! Wow! Sales. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was Cerve- a rain. Cerveza, Josh. Yes, mm. La Cerveza, to be t- totally yeah. <laughs> so uh, yes, there was unfortunately there was rain here, and so the outdoor seating was limited. And a restaurant near me was all prepared with some inflatable uh, Cinco de Mayo style <laughs> senores and senoras, I think, in the front, and they had all deflated, which I thought, oh. unfortunately, was the most 2020, 2021 storyline yeah, ever. Yeah, really. But anyway, I still have to introduce you, Josh. So the second co-host right here, who you just heard, he's an outlaw in Peru, a veteran of intrigue, and an expert in allegory, the man who no- now goes by the nickname of Baby Driver, Josh. <laughs> All I do is win, Hermanos. <laughs> <laughs> All I do is win, win. You know what? You got to cut that song in, Josh, right there. So it comes. Okay, perfect. DJ Khaled. <laughs> yeah, you need to put the DJ Khaled in as well. Or find one of those things like when you used to rip a song off LimeWire and they'd have like, you know, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> made by Max in the <laughs> yeah. background and you couldn't cut it out. So but try to find something like that as DJ well. DJ Green Lantern. Learn. DJ K. Slay, slay. 
YouTube. <laughs> that would be awesome. So that's what we're going to go with for this. So you probably have already heard that by now as we're talking about it real time right now. So I think the reason we're all a little bit pumped up besides it being Cinco de Mayo and my co-host celebrating the season right there in a couple different ways is that we have three very interesting albums today. If we can't get ratings on this episode, guys, I don't know what's going to bring them in because we have two, two members of the Beatles, as well as one of the most famous rock bands in the world, that is the Rolling Stones, and I'm going to be doing sticky fingers, not having sticky fingers, hopefully. Matt, what's on tap for you? We got Ram by Paul and Linda (laughs) McCartney. Nice. Josh? I've got All Things Must Pass by George Harrison, ex-Beatle. Ex-Beatle George Harrison. So we've got three big ones today. We also, for the first time that I can ever remember, have all three of our segments playing in the same episode. We have a Josh's Movie Corner, we have a Cleaning of the Stacks, and we even have an Essential Question. So I'm not going to waste any more time. Guys, let's start with Josh's Movie Corner to start. That's why God made the movie. Okay, I've got a double dose this week. I've got... Double D. I I watched The Doors by Oliver Stone, available on HBO Max if you have that streaming service. Um, It was really good. My main takeaway is that uh, Val Kilmer should have been nominated for an award for that performance. Not only Mm. did he completely embody George Harrison, but I later George Harrison? (laughs) (laughs) Jim Morrison. (laughs) I also learned that he he sang all of those songs. Those were not recorded after the fact or or lip synced or anything like that. So that's pretty incredible because he sounds exactly like him in the movie. Doesn't doesn't he have like a Jarrett Leto thing where like he has his own band that plays together sometimes? Mm, Like Not at this point. I don't know if he did. Val Kilmer, I think he like fronted a band that would play every once in a while. That, I'll have to check on that. That would not surprise me at all. Yeah. Well, he's, yeah. he's, he's had throat cancer uh, more recently, so he's mm. kind of been out of the spotlight for a while. But yeah, the um, other than that, I would say that it's a pretty typical biopic. It's it's like a love letter to the 60s and, and the Doors. Um, the Doors music is played throughout. It's basically a depiction of jim morrison's descent into <laughs> drug abuse and alcoholism and um and everyone in the door seems cool with it based on the movie so. <laughs> um other than and, I, I wouldn't say it's a a factual portrayal of of uh the doors but it was it was pretty enjoyable at times was it oliver stone playing that josh was it was the first you time say? you saw it right that was the first time i've seen it okay and, and are you saying say, Oliver Stone's playing loose with the facts. Is that what you're saying, Josh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can't imagine. The same year so, yeah. he did JFK too. So that's yes. crazy. Oh, is it? Um, yeah. And he my makes main, an appearance. My main take. A, go ahead. My, <laughs> main, my main takeaway from that movie was how often, like every scene, Jim Morrison slash Val Kilmer had booze in his hand. Like yeah. he just was drinking throughout the well, entire film. That's in fairness, that's pretty accurate to real life. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know. It's Josh just said. Like, were they cool with it? I think it was more like they realized that without Jim Morrison, there was no door. So they kind of just had to be cool with it. And that was just sort of the cost of doing business. So that was always my impression from the bios that I've read. Yeah, I think and I think the movie after the fact has kind of harmed the doors reputation or at least <laughs> not. You know, everyone thinks of the movie versus the actual doors. 
um, at least later on in the, you think so? in the generation. I think uh, I think people. So maybe a certain segment of the population. But I, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm yeah. just I've never thought of that before, and I just didn't know. I didn't I know think, that that was a. Yeah, I think a lot of people who didn't know much about the Doors and saw the movie then only know of the Doors through the movie versus mm. you know the the limited amount of um, footage and things. They clearly were not at the Jersey Shore to pick up all the posters of Jim Morrison's brooding face that I saw throughout my teenage years. <laughs> oh, so. oh, Josh, in the movie, did Jim Morrison actually expose himself or did he not? Uh, they they cut away. They imply that that it did happen. But, okay. um, but there's no actual footage of that. So there's no way to fact check it. If it right. actually happened, right? Like I said, the doors themselves said they that it didn't happen. So yeah, nobody I mean, was Instagramming that back in the day. <laughs> yeah, no. the movie just hits on all the kind of the high, high points of their career, and then they magically, you know, create light my fire in five minutes and and things <laughs> like that. So <laughs> yeah, um, it's a typical biopic in that respect. How the many thing, uh, how many stars would you give it, Josh? Uh, I gave it like three, just because it's kind of ridiculous. Three out of five. <laughs> Three out of five okay. cervezas. And <laughs> Estrellas. Right? Oh, yeah, good one. And then I watched, uh, for this segment, I watched George Harrison's uh, Living in the Material World, which is a Martin Scorsese doc um, from a while from a while back. That was on, I watched it from the library, but it's apparently rental on Amazon if you're interested. It is a three and a half hour doc. I loved it. It really gave me some much needed context for for his life especially post Beatles and um just kind of what an interesting person he was and really fleshed out kind of his personality besides being like the third most popular Beatle um you know or the lesser known of between Paul Lennon and McCartney and kind of what his views on life were and his personality and they had a lot of people interviewed for it and they do a really good job of kind of fleshing out his life and and what he was all about. So I really recommend that. Josh, you you, you could have just come to my house and watched it on DVD because oh. I have it on DVD. Yeah. Well, that would have been that would have been a trip when the library is right down the street from me. <laughs> yeah, but we would have hung out. It would have been cool. Yeah, that's true. And that was also a first time watch for me. I had not seen that. One of the few Scorsese movies I haven't seen. So. It's long. Is isn't it like four hours? I, or it's something? It's funny you say that because I I I liked The Doors. Um, I did not like the George Harrison bite. I found it oh, really? way, too, way too long. It, like, it's long. I, I tapped out like about an hour and a half in. Oh. And so that that's not a spoiler at all for how I feel about the albums or George Harrison. I just, it just didn't connect with me. Well, I mean, I split it up over a couple of viewings. Maybe that helped. And plus the first disc is really, which is about an hour and a half actually, is pretty much everything up to the Beatles um, I, yeah, or through the Beatles. I saw that and whatever the most recent like mob movie that Martin Scorsese made that was like seven hours long the as Irishman. well. <laughs> oh my god! Like I saw both of them within a week of each other, and I was wow. like, all right, I think Martin Scorsese doesn't know how to edit anymore. Was my first impersonation from that yeah, week. So, yeah. mm-hmm. John, what's worse, long, overly long songs or overly long films? Films. Songs. Overly long songs <laughs> only take twelve minutes at most. Films could take hours of your life, you know. So. Yeah, so I'm a time junkie. So, so but that's thank it you, for Josh. That. Yep, and let's move on to. Oh wait, how many stars did that one get, Josh? We I gave did, that four, four out of five. That got four. Okay, all right. Australia's. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> do you do half stars? I don't know if you've done a half star yet. Do you, do you break them in half? Sometimes? I do half stars. Yes. We okay. Haven't talked right. about a movie that's gotten half. Star. Okay. All right. Good. Okay. Is it cleaning the stacks time? It is. Drop it's the cleaning beat. the stacks. Ain't nobody, don't ask me. I'm 
Boom. All right. So, so I, am I, I think I'm the only one that's got some stacks to clean. If yeah, I'm I don't have mistaken. anything. So first of all, if you remember two episodes ago, uh, two of uh, the last regular episode ago, when John did, when I did my introduction, I did the hello baby. And you guys thought I was like Jerry Lee Lewis. Well, it, and no I was backwards. like, no, that came from Van Halen in Spaceballs. Mm -hmm. That was when they came into the diner. And that is true. John, you can hear that, the intro to that, that, that the, the song of Good Enough from Van Halen's 1986 album, 5150. That's, that's not actually, Van Halen. That's, that's, <laughs> that's Van Hagar, which, which doesn't count. Which I didn't know, because uh, I was like, I always thought it was actually um, David Lee Roth, and it's it's not. It's Sammy Hagar. So that was like the only time I ever confused the two of them. But um, How but would it, I not be aware thing. of... Of Sammy Hagar trying to sound like David Lee Roth. That sounds fantastic. Josh, Matt. not to put you on the spot, but if you want to put that on here, you can do so right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hello, baby. <laughs> All right. So, so there you go. So that that was where I got that from. And then um, the other thing I want to talk about talk talk about um, we talked about Lenny Kravitz uh, in his uh, I guess what he later referred to it as penis gate. Um, which, which, which I want to get away. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. he totally got away, and it was it happened in, on August third, two thousand fifteen, in uh, during a performance in Stockholm, Sweden. Wait, he was. We did we talk about? I don't even remember talking about Lenny Kravitz's penis. We you don't we talk. I we don't. Really I, about, I must have blanked it out of my mind. But continue. No, I'm all, fascinated well, we by up, this we, now. Just a refresher. We brought up Lenny Kravitz because at one point he did perform with the Plastic Ono Band. Um, Correct. And. Yep. And I had mentioned, did you remember that a couple years ago? He he was on stage and his leather pants split open and his <laughs> penis fell out. And uh, and you guys were like, no, nah, I never heard of that. And I was like, no, it totally happened. And I just wanted to say, no, it actually did happen on August 3rd, 2015 in <laughs> Stockholm, Sweden. Dreams. During the second song of his set, which was during American Woman. It was a very hot, humid day. And he was wearing <laughs> leather pants. And he just like set, squatted down and like his legs spread. And like the, the leather pants just split open. What are you inferring with the hot, humid day there, Matt? <laughs> I'm just saying because, like, who's wearing – first of all, who's wearing leather pants at this time, right? It's Rock not the stars. most comfortable. I've never actually worn leather pants, but my understanding is that you it's haven't? not – I haven't, no. Um, despite what, how I sound, I sound like a dude that's wearing leather pants all the time, I'm sure. But, like, you know, but, like – Draw that caricature. For, for, for those of you that might be interested, you could actually see – the the event it's it's posted online so you can go just google it and it'll be right there so it happened uh, nsfw yeah. so yep. <laughs> so he, once Len, once lenny kravitz that is pierced penis was released he uh he ran off stage and then grabbed another pair of leather pants to come out and finish the set so um damn if he didn't love his leather pants wow and you guys say that i talk about sex too much on this show and we just spent <laughs> two minutes talking about lenny kravitz's penis that so. might have been the well, third time I talked about sex on the podcast. Over I, the I also like how Comey, or, uh, Cleaning the Stacks has become like Matt explaining his non sequiturs <laughs> on the show, which is also fantastic. It's kind of a deviation from the original goal of it, but it works nonetheless. So It's part Thank of my you. charm, John. Cleaning, cleaning Matt's sequiturs. Is and that was actually, big, unlike yeah. Jim Morrison, there is proof of this. So, um, yeah. Gotcha. You keep mentioning that, so I'm going to guess that you scanned that a couple times over the weekend. So thank I you for it. being so vigilant now in your search for the truth. Yeah. Our listeners deserve nothing less. <laughs> Excellent. You know what else they deserve? They deserve an essential question that Josh came up with this week, and we're trying to keep it quick. So Josh, go ahead and throw Pearl Jam on, and let's talk about this essential question. Is that the question?
All right. So the essential question this week is, what song from a solo Beatles album would you put on a Beatles album retrospectively, retroactively? Any ideas? This came about, obviously, because of talking about All Things Must Pass and Ram this week. And we talked about John Lennon a couple weeks ago in the Plastic Ono band. So any ideas on what songs are worthy of being Beatles songs or are they all solo efforts? Matt, you go first. So I initially read this question as the George Har- from George Harrison's album. So that's the only way I thought of it. Um, yes. And so the, the one that came that stood out to me, that I'm like, this one seems to me like the most, like if all the rec- songs that would fit on a Beatles album, mm-hmm. it was um, Isn't It a Pity. I thought that was, in terms of, um, it, it's kind of like got a little bit of a messaging because a lot of Beatles songs were actually about love and peace and you know mm-hmm. harmony and that type of stuff and isn't it a pity it kind of takes a little bit of a twist on that in terms of you know um it's isn't it just a pity that we can't that people fight and don't get along like yeah. you know we sh- you know um it's got kind of like an orchestration in it that i feel like would be very much that would very much fit into a beatles album um i'm not sure exactly which one but that's that's the one because I, as i said i focused mainly on all things must pass and so that was yeah. the one that stood out to me that i would put on there yeah, I, I picked two from the George Harrison album and a couple from the Paul McCartney one. Isn't It a Pity was one of the two, Matt, that I picked too. Yeah. Um, and The Art of Dying was another song that I thought definitely could be a Beatles huh. song in terms of how it sounds. I, if I remember correctly, I did a quick look at it too, and I think George actually wrote that while he was in The Beatles, like earlier. I want to yeah. even say like Rubber Soul era, like is when he wrote it, and it, and it definitely makes sense when you think of it. So I... I kind of looked at that. Now, the McCartney album, I thought, had a lot of songs that could have been on a Beatles album. But the one that most stood out to me as one is that Uncle Albert, you know, Admiral Halsey medley. I mean, that was straight out of, like, Abbey Road, white album Beatles. And we knew that by that time, McCartney loved medleys. So that, to me, was a clear choice on the McCartney album, although there were multiple ones. Yeah. To be honest, I don't know if any of the songs on Plastic Ono Band fit as much with the Beatles. I mean, you could wedge them on, but to me that had such a different thematic yeah, concept that it didn't fit as easily. Yeah. Wait, wasn't wasn't there one though that you guys were saying that that could fit on the White Album? Like it was um Well, there are songs that that sonically could, for sure. I think it's well, just for me it's okay. hard to to like where Len like I think that where Lennon's at in his solo album is so detached from the Beatles compared to McCartney and Harrison who still have elements there. Okay. At least that's how I kind of feel. But yeah, sonically there's multiple songs I, on the yeah, album think, that could. Yeah. Well, well, well is something that, yeah. that strikes me as a Beatles sounding. See that? I don't know about that because that to me is like the, with all the screaming, that was a little, that was a little much. That was pushing the envelope a little too much for the Beatles. You know, mm. maybe if he didn't, because at the end he's just going, He's going all out, you know, like that seems a little harsh for me for a Beatles uh, record. I didn't say it was an essential answer, just an essential answer. (laughs) 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 I think I think if I remember correctly, the song that I thought sounded like it would be on the Beatles album was Love. And that's the one that I could see being in late Beatles. But I'll do do my homework on that and just make sure I'm right on that. But I, I do think that that Lennon album is divorced from the Beatles quite a bit compared to the other two. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. I agree. I would just say Josh. What Is Life reminds me of a Beatles-sounding song as well. It could definitely fit huh. in with, with Let It Be or Get Back and on one of those albums. One of my favorite songs in the album, spoiler. 
Gotcha. But yeah, that's that's what came to he- that's what came to mind when I thought of the question. I like that question though, and I think we can keep. Maybe we can, you know, as we do more, because we're gonna do more Lennon albums. We're gonna do, I think, one more McCartney album. I don't know if we do another Harrison album. I don't think so. But we could kind of no, make no. like a twelve-track Beatles album from the various solo albums. You know, well, we're we basically could... doing three Harrison albums tonight. So yes, exactly. <laughs> so we can. We can I thought. Collect... Yeah, you know what it that. was, John? I'm just remembering now. I think you said "I Found Out" was a Beatles was like a White Album type song. Oh or, yeah, yeah, um, you're right. It, band. it does sonically sound like it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah, even even the wordplay of it sounds like what the Beatles sounded like. Mid career yeah. Beatles, I'd say. Actually, it sounds more like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good good call, Matt. That's exactly what it is. Um, okay, well we've got a lot to cover tonight, and we we took up some time here in a positive way, but with different segments. So why don't we go? Uh, I believe Matt's starting us tonight, correct? With uh, Paul yep. and Linda and Ram. Okay, so this album is uh, Paul McCartney's. Well, actually, we'll do it. The opening montage. Oh, Josh has a Ram up behind <laughs> him. My Zoom background. <laughs> An actual Ram in the Zoom background. So very nice. Quite. Um, and so the opening montage, we heard a clip from Monkberry Moon Delight. And now we're going to hear a clip from Dear Boy. So this record comes in at number 93 in Best Ever Albums, Albums of the 70s. It was ranked number 18 in 1971 and number 375 of all time. And in Rolling Stone's recent uh, release, they said that this was number 450. So this is actually Paul McCartney's second solo album. He had an initial, uh, his first solo album was titled McCartney. uh, And this one is actually credited to both Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney. It was recorded from October 1970 through April 1971, and it was released on May 17, 1971. It includes three singles, one of which was McCartney's first number one single post-Beatles. Does anybody care to guess which which song on this record was his first number one single after the Beatles? Hmm. The Backseat of My Car. That was a single. That was not okay. the one I was going for, mm. though. Okay. Smile Away? Nope. Okay, I have no idea that. Okay. It was actually, and this is surprising, Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, what? was the was his, was his single. Well, because it, it sounds like the Beatles. It makes sense, because it sounds like the Beatles. I would argue it sounds yeah. like the Kinks, but um, we'll get to that uh, in a little that's bit. That's accurate, too, but we, talk, yeah. I, we talked in a previous episode that I always said that Paul McCartney shared a lot of traits with Ray Davies, right, as a songwriter. Yes. I think yeah. there's even a segment in Willard's Green where we talk about that. Yes. Um, and the third single that they came out with was Eat at Home. So six of the twelve oh, that songs. Makes sense, yeah. Yep, six of the twelve songs on this album are credited to both Paul and Linda McCartney, although she had limited to no songwriting uh, history before. She was she's a photographer, but um, Paul McCartney did bring her on, and she's 
wrote I don't know exactly how she wrote maybe some lyrics or something but um but she did was credited for half who? the songs in this record does she sing who backup did... too on this she does yes yeah okay yeah because and who she did takes... she go ahead I'm sorry I, I was gonna say she takes co-lead on a couple of places yeah. as well yeah who did she photograph the cover of remember we talked about her Jimmy Hendrix her Electric Lady there we Land. go perfect thank you Matt good yep. call continue all right, so a little bit of a history. I think we got to go back. There's gonna, there might be a little overlap here because I don't know how much Josh is going to cover about um, George Harrison's record in terms of the as as it came about from the breakup of the Beatles. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to talk a little bit more about the breakup of the Beatles because it does kind of play into this a little bit where where with McCartney is. So um, he really he's kind of the guy that really separated himself in the latter years. And one could make the argument that if it that the other members of the band, even though Lennon technically kind of quit, you know, quietly in September of night, you know, was the first one to quit. Um, McCartney was the one that really, you know, put it to the end. Um, Formally. He, yeah. yeah, he he made it formal. The other ones kind of put out hints that they would still record, that they're still open to things. But McCartney's the one that really, you know, filed the lawsuit at the end of 1970 to, you know, to kind of go through the procedure. So, um, so yeah, so he had distanced himself. He he was the one that wanted to hire his father-in-law as the manager of the Beatles. The other three wanted the, the Rolling Stones business manager, Alan Klein, the other three won out. You <laughs> Who know. comes up this week? <laughs> yeah, in a very famous story. Yeah, go and, ahead. and one could and you could make the argument that McCartney. Well, I don't know if the Eastmans, if his if his uh, in laws would have been good, but Alan Klein was clearly not good for the Beatles. There was a lot of lawsuits that they had with him later on. So McCartney would, might have been right about that. Uh, there was also a discussion that the Beatles, that McCartney, Lennon, uh, and Harrison had. Uh, b right before they actually Lennon left the band, which was to say, you know, let's let's continue the band, but we'll break up the songwriting credits so that there will be no more Lennon McCartney. John will get four songs. Paul will get four songs. George will get four songs. Ringo will get two. And we can just do it like that. So everybody seemed to be okay with that, except Paul. Paul was like, I don't think we need to do the Democratic thing. Plus, George's songs aren't very good, which Lennon came back and was like, dude, you got some clunkers yourself, like oh, blah, dee, oh, blah, da. Nobody liked Maxwell Silverhammer. Your songs suck too. So, um, But McCartney was kind of really not wanting to go that route. Lennon goes off to perform. The Plastic Ono Band is kind of happening around this time, and they play a concert in Toronto, and they got a really positive reception there. And that's when he came back, you know, and he like a week later and said, you know what, I'm done, you know, so um, I, I'm going to go do my own thing. So McCartney leaves at this time in, you know, in the fall of 1969. It's not made public yet that they've broken up. They figured, you know, the business side of things, it's not good for people to know that they're breaking up. But so McCartney goes to Scotland with his family and he gets really depressed. He gets into alcohol. He starts using more drugs. Um, it's one of the worst times of his life. Linda McCartney says the same thing. And I also, in my research, found out that at one point, Jimi Hendrix sends, sends a telegram to Apple Records asking McCartney to record an album with him and Miles Davis. Um, to which Apple replied, McCartney's not in the office. He's not available right now. So um, so obviously that never happened, but wow, that would have been crazy. Why didn't they try and get a hold of him? <laughs> I, I don't know. All I saw was just like, you know, he reached out. They said he wasn't available. So, you know, and then probably shortly thereafter, Jimi Hendrix died. So that, you know, so there was no follow through with that, obviously. How, how long had he been with Linda? Were they married or were they just boyfriend? That's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. Um, a couple of years, I think. I don't okay. think it was just recent. You know, she had, Linda had been in the picture for a little bit, but maybe I can, I can maybe clean that stack next week. 
so he goes out, McCartney, while he's in Scotland, he fo- he starts recording a lo-fi album. This is his debut album, McCartney. Uh, he's the only one playing the instruments. He's doing his own thing. Um, and he decides to release it, but the Beatles ask him not to because his release date in April was co- coinciding with when they wanted to release Let It Be. And it also coincided when Ringo was, was releasing a solo album called Sentimental Journey. So apparently Ringo was the first one to have like an album ready to go that I had never heard of. So, he also uh, had the first number one. One, didn't he? If I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure his I, I album hit one. Did he? Yeah. No, I, I think George. I think George had that first. Number, album. Wait, number one album, John, or number one song? Number one album. Oh, I don't know. I'll, ch- I, I'll check. I'll check while okay. you're finishing. Well, the- that album that Ringo did was "Sentimental Journey." So Ringo goes to Paul's house to ask him, "Hey, could you could you hold off the release of this? Apple's, you know, we're gonna do Let It Be. We got my album going. We'd all like you to, you know, uh, maybe push it back just to, you know, kind of s- spread things out a bit." <laughs> McCartney didn't like this. He kicked him out of the house and it's like, "Get the hell out of here!" Blah blah blah. So the other band didn't really like that. And then McCartney goes out and he and he does a press release in while he releases the record, and he essentially says that. Um, He's, you know, he doesn't have any plans of recording with the Beatles again. Um, you know, they're going to take a break for a while. The press runs with this and they say the Beatles are officially broken up. McCartney says that wasn't his intent to officially do it, but the pre- that's what the press did. So the other members of the band are really upset saying he's just using this as an opportunity to, um, you know, to, to promote his, his first album. And um, yeah, so they're not happy with that at all. And then like any hope of the band getting back together is, is basically gone after this moment. And um, so fans were really mad at McCartney uh, that he was kind of seen as the one that was responsible for the breakup of the band and critics panned his album, um, that, that first McCartney album. And you know, he, he McCartney was in a very low spot, and that's where he kind of is when he starts to uh, record this record, which he goes back to Scotland. They try to get away. Also, I should say at this point, I should back up a second. <laughs> when, when McCartney first goes to Scotland and he disappears, this is where the first rumors happen where that the, the, the band said that uh, or that people started saying Paul's that McCartney is dead, <laughs> right? Because he's gone, right? Nobody knows where he is. And then after he um, after he decided that uh, you know he was he did the press release and saying that the band is is breaking up essentially Lennon was asked about this and he said quote it was nice to find out he was still alive uh, <laughs> which I found funny <laughs> so um so he goes out and he starts to do some simplistic songs he's writing songs in Scotland and that's the songs that we're hearing on Ram these are songs that are just kind of like about simple life um you know living in the country and kind of getting away from the hectic life that he had had before he did ask Linda to join the band to join him at that time because he wanted to was intrigued with harmonizing with a with a woman uh, he had never really done that before and while his first album was basically just him with a four track, he did all the instruments and all the singing that he decides that he wants to uh, have auditions for uh, uh, several musicians, which was kind of done in a cryptic way because the musicians were actually, you know, somebody r- rang them up and said, hey, I want you to come audition for something. And they walked in, not, you know, some of them thought that they were trying to audition for like a commercial or something like that. And they walk into the basement of a church somewhere and there's Paul McCartney. He's like, whoa. So he's doing auditions for a band, you know, without them really knowing that that's what they're doing. So you have on this record, Paul McCartney with vocals, bass, piano, keyboards, and the ukulele. Um, and Linda McCartney's doing some vocals, but you also have Danny Sewell on drums. Um, a couple of guitarists, David Spinoza, who's there for a little bit period of time, and then Hugh McCracken, who I believe is Phil's brother. Um, and uh, he's the one that played guitar also on another 
album that we covered before, which is uh, Eli and the 13th Confession by Laura Nero. Hmm. Not Laura Nero, yes. as I initially thought. Uh, he here. also... <laughs> He also played with Van Morrison and B.B. King and the Monkees previously to uh, playing with McCartney. So some other CTS people that we've talked about. Uh, so this album was not well received by the critics. A lot of them, they, they it was panned. Um, it was also panned by the previous the members of the Beatles. Lennon felt that several of the songs included jibes directed at him and Yoko, which actually one of them was. McCartney did admit that too many people when he talks about preaching practices that was basically directed at Lennon, he felt that Lennon was trying to tell everybody how to live and um, you know what they should do. And McCartney was kind of didn't think that that was cool. Uh, and uh, Ringo and George thought that three legs was directed at them. Uh, but he, he kind of did not, uh, but he, you know, pushed that off as well. But, but they, they, they were thinking that this is, you know, the, the, the start of like the, 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 the music wars between them, you know, <laughs> trying to send messages to each other through their songs, I guess. Uh, it did sell well, this album. It, it reached number one in the UK and number two in the US. And it sold, has sold over 2 million copies. So a couple of things. but So in, initially it got panned by critics, but in recent years it's gotten more um, uh, critical acclaim, actually. So uh, just to juxtapose what people said about it before, uh, it, uh, John Landau and Rolling Stone called Ram, quote, incredibly inconsequential and monumentally irrelevant. He also criticized its lacks of, lack of intensity and energy, adding that it exposes McCartney as having, quote, benefited immensely from collaboration with the Beatles, particularly John Lennon, who held the reins on McCartney's cutesy pie florid attempts at pure rock Muzak, and he kept him from going off the deep end that leads to an album which was emotionally vacuous. Wow. So, okay. uh, Tell yeah, us what you harsh. really think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ringo, Ringo said, I quote, I feel sad about Paul's albums. I don't think there's one good tune on that last one, Ram. He seems, <laughs> he seems to be going strange. But recently, all music editor Stephen Thomas Erlewine wrote, quote, in retrospect, it looks like nothing so much as the first indie pop album, a record that celebrates small pleasures with big melodies. And Pitchfork's Jason Green similarly felt that McCartney was, quote, inventing an approach to pop music that would eventually become someone else's indie pop. And he called Ram a domestic bliss album, one of the weirdest, earthiest and most honest ever made. Um so quite the uh, contrast in reviews between then and now. So um, I have a couple of things to add on to it at the end, but let's uh, let's just go into our reactions here. We will start with, let's start with John. What do you think about Ram, John? This is a really interesting album because I, I here's some initial thoughts, Matt. I really like this album musically and I really hate this album lyrically. And it was a constant <laughs> yeah. juxta juxtaposition for me between really digging what I think was super creative and ahead of its time. I don't, I read that like it's the beginning of indie rock. I get where that's coming from. Um, I think there's albums that, that beat this album to it, like, um, which I'll get to in a second because mm -hmm. it kind of ties into my second point. But yeah, I, I love what Paul McCartney was doing musically on this album. He's a hell of a guitar player. I say it all the time. He's like such an underrated bass player as a guitarist. He's fantastic. His sense of, and I know this is why you love him so much, Matt, his sense of melody is incredible. His mm -hmm. songs are so 
corny. I just, I can't, <laughs> like, they're so bad. Like, it's rare. Yeah. Like, even his, so, so, so it's like, oh, he gets by so much understandably on his melody and his song craft, which is incredible, but his song craft does not include lyrics. And now that I've heard Harrison, Lennon, and McCartney, it's even more profoundly stands out. With that being said, though, the music is tippy-top tier. You know, this album somewhat reminded me, uh, I thought there was a lot of songs that could have been on late Beatles albums as McCartney entries, and mm-hmm. it also sounded like a Beach Boys album to me. I got like, that too. Like, late That's 60s. Really like, it reminded me of Wild Honey, the album we did quite a bit, which I think kind of did that lo-fi indie deal, too. Like, this album wasn't quite as lo-fi, but... As I listen to this, I'm like, this sounds like a Beach Boys album. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking, and I know Paul McCartney likes Brian Wilson. I know that he was trying to go lo-fi and after Pet Sounds, the Beach Boys were too. For like, you know, Wild Honey and Sunflower and and Surf's Up and stuff like that. And this album sounds a lot like those albums. Now, I know we haven't covered Surf's Up and sunflower but if you were to listen to him matt and josh you guys i think would see a lot of similarities and so that was all the way down to like an animal on the front cover with paul mccartney playing with it i'm like that's interesting you know kind of similar to the pet sounds um album cover but that was my takeaway i i liked this album but um I just the the lyrics were just like really paul mccartney-ish you know like yeah. the che- cheesy and i just I almost wish like he had just been a member the the music force of this band and just let somebody else write the lyrics, you know? And um, if he'd done that, this would have been a step up for me. With that being said, I still thought this was a very much above average album and I liked it and I would recommend, mm-hmm. but I recommend it for the music and the song construction, both of which are excellent. Um, the back end of this album in particular is excellent. Starting from, you know, Monkberry Moon Delight. I love that song. Eat at Home is a great song. I, and I love Long Haired Lady and The Backseat of My Car. The first six songs were more hit and miss to me a little bit more. Um, there were some gems in there, but there were some very forgettable songs, but they also were you couldn't ignore the lyrics more because they were more stripped down, whereas the guitar kicked in a lot more in the back end. You know what I mean? And the music, the layer, and it was much easier to kind of lose yourself in it. So there's my takes. Well, I I should mention too that he chose the the title Ram um, Mm -hmm. because it was a, it was, he saw it as like a strong force and he was trying to, and and it also ramming, it means like kind of pushing forward strongly. Mm. So he's like, I'm moving forward. I'm getting done, done with the Beatles. I'm doing my own thing. And uh, here it is. So he wanted kind of a stronger feeling towards it. And that's why he went with that title. So I think all um, things must pass is a better end of band <laughs> title, to be quite honest. But, but it also, hey, I get but it, it yeah. also fits both of their, you know, personalities. Yes. You know, you it does. Say, it really yeah, does when yeah. you think about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Josh. Yeah, that's that's this kind of part of the larger discussion. But it's really interesting. And it's not something I thought about before is like what these guys did after breaking up with the Beatles and and what this can extrapolate to what bands in general do when they go solo. It's like each of these artists in the Beatles is almost like a stripped down or, or kind of a different version of themselves than they, than they are on their solo albums. Each one of these solo albums, the plastic Ono band, this and, and all things must pass. It's like them, their personalities unleashed. And it's like what they always wanted to do or they can do whatever they want now. Right. Versus yeah. trying to fit the mold of the Beatles. And, yep. and, and that 
is very apparent when you listen to all the Beatles albums that we've had and then listen to these three albums in quick succession. You can hear the differences in their personality and and their musical interests, right? Because, like, I noted the ukulele on Ram On, uh, like the third track on this album. A ukulele would never have been in the Beatles, but clearly that's something that McCartney was interested in. And he also brings all these other things to this album, like... The first track reminded me of a Who song in in some ways, just with the guitar chords or something. And then he brings some blues mm. things in on on three legs. And then he I noted the Beach Boys esque like qualities on like Smile Away. And then and then Linda's on this too, which obviously there was no um, female vocalists on on Beatles albums. So he's trying all these different things, and I think he's really trying to separate himself from the Beatles sound. Can can I add one thing, by the way? Mm-hmm. There's one notable Beatles song that I can think of immediately that has a ukulele, which I also think of as the most Paul McCartney song in the Beatles. What Do you song guys, is that? I no. don't remember. Hey Jude. Is there a ukulele on Hey Jude? Mm-hmm. I believe so, if I remember correctly, unless if I'm going is, nuts. I've never yeah. heard a ukulele. Okay, hey maybe Jude. I heard a ukulele version of it at one point. <laughs> like, But I, I like... I, I, distinctly remember ukulele like a version of hey jude being played on the ukulele one time maybe it's like a another version and i seem to remember paul mccartney playing it let me see if i can it's not in the the track because that hey jude wasn't on an album right so it's a single it's certainly not on the single version but i distinctly remember seeing well there could have been a studio version yeah Yeah, there could have been like a beast not a b-side but like a you know like a demo you know like a demo outtake or something like Uh, that let me see if i can let me see if i can find it hold on quick but mccartney mccartney loved the ukulele because i believe john's mother played the ukulele um, when they were kids. And so he, he always loved that. And he said later on, you know, so every time I see an adult that anybody plays a ukulele, I love it. So there was, he has a personal affinity for it. So it doesn't surprise me that he's using it on this, on this record. Yeah. I liked, I liked this album. I didn't think it was like mind blowing or anything. I don't, uh, my favorite song on the album was Monkberry Moon Delight, just because I feel like that was almost like a Captain Beefheart song. It was, and he's got a, <laughs> he's got a yeah. different he's got yeah. a different voice. He's like really like doing something different, and and the tune is really catchy, and the way he sings the chorus is really great, and it just kind of caught me off guard. And that was by far my favorite thing on the album. It I don't looking back, I don't think of any of these songs as like strong singles or like really popular things. It's it's more of like him just trying to get all the kinks out and really trying to stretch himself as an artist. Um, I think Linda McCartney on here is fine. Um, I don't think, I mean, it's interesting hearing him sing harmonies with, with a woman, but I don't think, and she doesn't sing lead on any of the songs. I don't think. And um, I think she does some lead parts on "Long Haired Lady." Like, there's, oh there's, yeah. yeah, "Love Is Long." And then I wrote, "This song is long." And <laughs> and um, yeah, that's long and distinguished, yeah. long and distinguished. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that's that's my main takeaway. What do you have, Matt? What do you? So have? I didn't know. Like I said before, I didn't know any of the songs on this, and I wasn't. I've all, I knew Plastic Ono Band. I knew All Things Must Pass. I like both of those albums a lot. Um, and uh, I was surprised how much I liked this. Um, mm-hmm. And I I think I, the more I listened to it, the more I liked it. Um, I love the variety on here. There's a lot of stuff going on here musically. Yeah. And I get what John's saying about musically it's great, but lyrically it's kind of ridiculous. Um, 
it does that but because but because I'm not a lyric guy that doesn't offend me as much you know if he's hooking me in with the music then that's all I need and there's songs in here that I really like monk I agree monkberry moon delight is a fantastic song it's just so cool it sounds ahead yeah. of its time I love that McCartney voice and that's something that I don't know if I've talked about before but he's but he 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 gave you little hints of it with the Beatles um like there, he did it with "I Got a Feeling" and "Let It Be," um, and he does it there. He does it here. He's like that howl, that McCartney voice that's just yeah. so good. It's so powerful and raw and raucous, and uh, and he's doing that the whole time through through that song. And it's just got a cool little funky rhythm to it. Just very danceable. Great song. Um, I, I felt that Dear Boy was definitely like a beach. I'm trying to do the Beach Boys with the harmonies, the, the intricate, you know, writing there. As I, think I mentioned, like multi-tracking on that. Totally. Right? He's like singing against himself. And yeah, stuff. it's like the Beach Boys influence there is, is palpable. Um, and, and the Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey is just, is to me, was like, this is a kink song like that. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's similarities between them in general, but that there's parts of that I'm like, he's totally doing, trying to do a Ray Davies kind of a thing here. And even it's in the title, right? When you have like the... Yeah. You know, the Admiral, you know, and Uncle Albert, like it just seems like a very, that slice of life, you know, let's throw in like a military guy, you know, things that the kinks were doing with that. Um, but I loved like, I loved, I like the Ramon song with the ukulele, you know, I see that's way that, that mm-hmm. does seem like an indie rock thing that somebody like, you know, freaking Boney Vera would be doing, you know, like today mm-hmm. or something like that, you know. Um, but then you've got more straight ahead stuff like Eat at Home is more of a straight ahead uh, rock song. Um, you know, Too Many People's a great pop song. Heart of the Country is this like little slope. That, that's a song that I could see being on a Beatles record to be like a, like a, and I think he actually might've written that when they were, when he was in India doing all the stuff that ended up on the white album. But, hmm. um, yeah, just interesting stuff. Songs that take like three or four different parts. Uh, and, um, yeah, I, I, I like this, you know, the more I listened to it, the more I liked it. Um, I, I, I'm not going to say, well, I could talk about the rankings of the Beatles albums, you know, the solo Beatle albums later. Um, I, I, I I wouldn't say that this is my favorite, uh, but it's, I was surprised. I, I thought this was a solid effort. Um, and uh, I get why I think in terms, I, I do get why it was panned. It does. It, it seems a little ahead of its time. Um, and I also get why people are loving it today because you're seeing things that panned out late, like, you know, later on musically that other artists were doing that, that you can hear in today's music as well, at least with indie rock. So, um, so yeah, thumbs up for me. I, I was, I was a fan of this for sure. Yeah, I think those. Go ahead, Josh. I'll I'll finish. Yep. I was just gonna say I think it it would be hard for critics to separate the individual artists from the Beatles and not compare the albums to like Beatles albums. Well, and that's the thing too. It's like it's not a Beatles album, right? right. And so like you're saying, yes, the, the part of what made the Beatles album so great is you had each other. They had each other to kind of temper and to try to like direct them in different ways, mm-hmm. you know. And um and, and and but one of the things I I read in an article that Lennon you know interview that he did, he said you know when I did Plastic Ono Band. I, I could just do whatever, you know, yeah. I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't have to be self-conscious around Paul or George or George Martin or anybody. I could just do what I wanted to. Um, so I didn't expect this to be as good as any Beatles album. And I'm not saying that it, it, it well, I, I'm not, I don't know. I haven't really compared it to every Beatles album, but it's good, right? It's really good. And I didn't expect it to be the Beatles album. And I don't think anybody should listen to any solo, you know, right. post Beatles album and think and expect it to be like that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, I'll, I'll add there's definitely like an orchestral element on a couple mm-hmm. songs as well, mm-hmm. um, which is 
along with that ukulele choice on Ram On, right? The other thing that stands out. The rest is pretty straightforward. Um, you know, guitar, drums, um, some, uh, quite a bit of piano, you know. And, Backseat of My Car is kind of an intricate yeah. song. There's a lot. That's an yeah. interesting song. I really like that song, places. actually. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, that's where I think if you're talking about as a modern indie type place, that's probably a song that I think most lines up. It's also one of his better songs lyrically. And just to clean a stack, um, while it did not have ukulele, like, and I was trying to say, I, I, you know, Hey Jude, the regular one does not. It is considered to be the song that you start with if you're trying to play the Beatles on ukulele. So I'm kind of full <laughs> of shit, but also it does get... So I did clearly see someone play the ukulele a version of it. Somehow I thought it was Paul McCartney because I know Paul McCartney loves the ukulele, but I'm only half full of shit on that one, so I apologize. So any Beatles fans listening to this who are like, John's full of shit, like, I... I was a little bit wrong there, and uh, mea culpa. So, That's all good. Yes. Hey, John, I know I know you probably didn't pick up on this, but um, do you know what the backseat of my car is about? <laughs> ah, <laughs> philosophical discussions under the uh, <laughs> under the stars, under las yeah. las estrellas, something like that. Yeah. I, I would I would also say though I think that probably what you're saying, John, the the, the 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 discrepancy between how much I like the music and how dumb the lyrics are, I think for me is the the biggest example of that is on Smile Away, which mm. I love the music for that, but I'm just like he's talking about somebody smelling his feet. Yeah, yeah, it was just a really I, I struggled with that song because I just couldn't get into it because of how dumb the lyrics were. Okay. And uh, yeah. but the music was so good though. That that's a really fun song musically. It, I found it, anyway. It was, and I was able to appreciate it the second time. But I'll be honest, the first time I heard this album, it wasn't until Monkberry Moon Delight that I got sucked in. And yeah. then it finished strong because I loved Eat at Home and I liked Long Haired Lady. And I was like, okay, like I'm back in. And then the backseat of the car, you know, the Ram on reprise is 52 seconds. It's not yeah, right. much. So, but that got me, and I'm like, all right, okay, I like enough of this album that the second time I think I might like more of it and just tune off the lyrics and just go well, into the music. And well, I listened to the second time basically as just music. And four of the six songs that Linda McCartney co-wrote are on the second half. Hmm. Oh, so maybe Linda was the, the genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's, she sings on all those, or a lot of them, too. I was hoping we wouldn't say anything else that the segment would end on that, so we could just make more people angry. So, yeah. So, yeah, uh, I, I guess interesting interesting out, out uh, journey into the... Yeah, this. and... And I would say, too, just to finish this up, we are going to cover one more Paul McCartney album. This is the second highest rated McCartney album. We're going to do Band on the Run as well. Oh, nice. Wings. That's yeah. right. But so, uh, and Wings comes after this. I think I think these yes. guys, the people in this in, in this incarnation of this uh, of, of Paul McCartney's band here actually ended up playing with him on Wings, or became part of Wings. Uh, so I also found out that he recorded a instrumental, a purely instrumental version of this record but he did. Oh, there we go. But it wasn't really, he did it, recorded it at the same time that he did Ram, but he didn't release it until 1977. So he just got busy doing other stuff with wings and then later on decided to release it, but he released it under a pseudonym and you can listen to this on Spotify. If you want, you Mm. do not search Paul McCartney. You search for the artist called Percy quote thrills, Thrillington. (laughs) Um, And it's called, the album is called Thrillington. And uh, there were rumors that this was actually Paul McCartney, but he never officially admitted to it until 1989. 
he finally said, yes, that was me. So you can uh, <laughs> so. fully listen to an instrumental, which is different. It's like a lot more orchestration yeah. and stuff. But uh, yeah, it's called Thrillington. Wow, so weird. So there you go. Yeah. All right, John, report back. Listen to that. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, it sounds like how I like this version. You know what I mean? The great music without the lyrics. I also just could see John Lennon going like, Paul with his stupid Percy, you know, Thrillington, you know what I mean? Like all the stuff I hate, like, you know, at that point when they were so, ad, you know, adversarial, I could just see him, you know, saying what a gimmick, you know, yep. stuff like that. So, yeah. Well, a guy who's not a gimmick, George Harrison. And I think we're ready for segment two, Josh. So take it away. Okay, George Harrison, All Things Must Pass, in the opening montage you heard, If Not For You. And now you're going to hear what I picked, What Is Life? What I feel I can't say Things Must Pass, released November 27th, 1970 in the U.S., November 30th in the U.K., and Numbers Guy, where are we at on the numbers? So we're at number 35 on Best Ever Albums in the 1970s, so pretty up there. Number four in, 19, in the year 1970, 132 overall, and in Rolling Stones list, it made it at number 368. Okay, great. Thank you. So before I started researching this and and listening and just listening to the album i assume this was his first sol- first solo album but i was wrong yep. <laughs> while the beatles uh while with the beatles he released two albums that were mainly instrumental one was called wonderwall music which was technically the first solo album by a beatle and uh now now uh, oasis is even, is even more <laughs> on the nose i didn't realize <laughs> that <laughs> which was a soundtrack uh that was a soundtrack to a film called wonderwall from 1968 which I, which starred jane birkin um who who appeared in that that george harrison doc and who john brought up last week or the mm-hmm. week before that's um, that's your assignment for next week josh you got to watch that movie now oh god it doesn't look good <laughs> you you may remember jane birkin as the moaning in yeah. <laughs> sir kingsburg <laughs> album <laughs> oh, <Continue. right>. <laughs> <laughs> wait what seriously yes that was who was moaning wow. it was originally supposed to be um bridget bardot but they broke up and so it that. became jane birkin yep We're crossing birkin. the streams all over the place here. our french shout out to our french <laughs> listeners right that's there. right we have some now that's awesome bonjour mon ami <laughs> so wonderwall music was a blend of india indian and western music and then he did another album called electronic sound which was an electronic album, which features a lot of Moog synthesizer. Um, mm. Harrison considers All Things Must Pass his first true solo album, though. Um, he, after kind of during the time with uh, that Matt touched on, you know, during the breakup of the Beatles, basically '69, um, he talked. He toured with Delaney and Bonnie and Friends, which Matt touched on in the Derek and the Dominoes segment a few episodes back. Um, 
and he he kicked around like hanging out with people and and things like that and um then this album came out which was released the same year that the beatles broke up um and and it contains many songs that were not included on Beatles albums. Um, Harrison had a lot of material written um, as far back as 1966, in fact. And since he only got, you know, two songs, maybe three songs on a Beatles album, he had that large backlog of, of material. Um, and he and he developed as a writer, um, you know, as he wrote more and, and through his career with the Beatles. Um, production of this album started in May of 1970 and and was worked on through October of 1970. It was co-produced by Phil Spector, and um, who has ties to the Beatles, obviously, with, with Let It Be and then the Plastic Ono Band. And he was... Um, a lot of the influence of this album came from uh, his spirituality and his spiritual journey, um, his friendships with people like Bob Dylan and the band, um, other people he hung out with, and... Um, you'll hear all sorts of influences um, musically on this album as well. Um, also things like Hare Krishna's and his Hinduism that plays into it with the spiritual aspects. And in fact, the songs, all things must pass, hear me Lord and let it down um, were he brought up during the get back rehearsal sessions, but were rejected by Lennon and McCartney. This was the first time um, during those the get back sessions that Phil Spector had heard the songs as well. Um, also, um, in that year, in May of 1970, he saw Dylan perform in New York and got the song If Not For You from Bob Dylan um, for this album. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the songs on this album touch on spiritual matters, love, and friendship. The third, um, this is a three LP album, if we hadn't said that already. The third LP. Um, is titled Apple Jam, which is five tracks and are mainly instrumentals built around minimal chord changes. And aside from the 17 tracks on the first two LPs of this album, he actually recorded 20 other songs that were either demos or outtakes um, for Spectre during the recording of this. And some of those have been released on bootlegs, um, songs he returned to later on in his career. He gave some to other artists and some were never officially released. Um, if you didn't know, uh, this features Phil Spector's wall of sound approach on this album. And um, as a result, there are about a million different musicians that <laughs> feature on this album. <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> um, really too many to name, but I'll give some of the highlights. Um, you've got Eric Clapton featured on here. Um, Ringo plays drums, uh, one of two drummers on some of the tracks. You've got people from Delaney, Bonnie and Friends um, on here. Uh You've got Jim Gordon, who was drummer for Derek and the Dominoes, um, Bobby Keys, who was saxophonist for the Stones, and Harry Nilsson, and was and John Lennon and Clapton. He was basically a touring musician his whole life. Um, Billy Preston was on here, who was a, a friend of the Beatles and, and Harrison. Uh, Klaus Vorman, who was a bassist who the Beatles knew from back in the Hamburg days and is, features prominently on the dock as well. Um, the band Badfinger is on here. Um, they're an English band that were under the Apple record label. Yep. Uh, Peter Frampton is on here uncredited. Um, and Ginger Baker played drums on I Remember Jeep. <laughs> so yeah. you've got a lot. Also, Phil Collins was apparently on one track of uh, Art of Dying, but then they didn't use that take, so you Aww. can't hear it on the album. 
Yeah. Um, production took longer than expected for a number of reasons. You guys have any guesses why production might have taken long? Because <laughs> Phil Spector's <laughs> nuts? I'm guessing exactly. that's one of the reasons. Phil yeah. Spector's too erratic busy behavior. Shooting, <laughs> yeah. shooting people. Yes. Uh, and at one point, he fell over and broke his arm during pr- production of the album. And, and Harrison has said that he had to drink like eight brandies in order to even be like coherent. Um during recording um harrison was also taking care of his mom who was dying of cancer during the time or diagnosed with cancer so he would kind of make trips back and forth to liverpool that kind of delayed things as well and also clapton and patty boyd started becoming a thing during this um this time so i think that (laughs) that's really interesting on the on the documentary they kind of downplay how much of an issue that was um he seemed okay with it based on the documentary i'm not sure how okay well that's the thing too josh just a segue i i I have never heard or seen anything that showed like how pissed off harrison was or that this caused any rift between him and clap well he like he was cheating on her that he was cheating on her left and right too so i think with his like his like harry Hare Krishna, yeah. you know, with, approach. With it's like, Ring- ah, well, live and let live. You know what I with, mean? It's with the- Ringo's wife, too. Like, unless oh, you geez. forget, yes, right? Yeah. Yes, yes, that's, that's true. <laughs> Ringo did okay, though. He, he rebounded pretty strong with, like, a Playboy Playmate, right? Who he's been married to for, like, 40 years, if I remember Has correctly. Yeah, that does, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he did all okay. right for himself. Man, the 60s were a wild time. All things must pass, Josh. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, the original release of this album came in a hinged box instead of a typical triple yeah. gatefold um, album. Yep. Um, the black and white cover was taken at Friar Park, which is Harrison's home. Um, that was actually a former park <laughs> that was going to be shut down, and then Harrison bought it bought there's it. A, bit, a big castle on it and there's like huge grounds and it, it looks really cool and a um, bunch of gnomes a bunch yeah. of garden gnomes <laughs> yeah, exactly um harrison is surrounded by garden gnomes on the cover which people have interpreted as representative of the beatles and they're breaking up um there was also a poster included with this album that has harrison like brooding and shadow in one of his hallways um the first this is the first triple album ever um previous with by an artist that had previously unreleased music. Um, My Sweet Lord was the first single on the double A side with Isn't It a Pity. Um, This was the first single by a solo Beatle to reach number one in the U.S. and U.K. There was a second single uh, that was What Is Life backed with Apple Scruffs. Um, The album was number one in the U.K. for eight weeks and number one in the U.S. for seven weeks. And in the 1972 Grammys, it was nominated for Album of the Year and Sweet My Sweet Lord was Record of the Year, but lost out to both by what CTS Hall of Famer? Oh, wow. Wow. Any uh, guesses? We haven't talked about her. Carol King? S- correct. Carol King. Oh, that's yep. a good guess. Because yeah. Tapestry, yeah. Tapestry was that year, right? It so, was yeah. huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. we're going to cover that. Yep. So. In good company. Um, as of two, January 2011, this album has sold more albums than Imagine and Band on the Run combined. So this was by far a yeah. more popular album. It received universal critical acclaim on its release and is considered the most successful solo Beatles album. And I think George himself is kind of considered the most successful um, solo artist. And and people, art, or critics really responded to him 
coming out of the limelight of being the quote unquote third Beatle or, you know, in the shadows of Lennon and McCartney and coming into their own. Um, he had a long career after this. I'm not going to really go into the details of that. Um, I do recommend watching the doc if you want to know about more about that. He died in November 29th, 2001 at the age of 58 of cancer. Um, that, that spread, yeah, oh. it spread to his brain. And um, his family scattered his ashes in the Ganges and Yumana rivers near uh, in India as part of uh, his request. So all things must pass, including my bio of this album. And <laughs> <laughs> almost as long as the album there, Josh. Yeah, triple. I got a lot of facts to get through. I'm a fax man, not the tax man. And <laughs> that's a that's see. a George Harrison song too. So that was particularly appropriate. <laughs> All right, Matt. What do you, let's let's start with you this time. What did you think of All Things Must Pass? I know you said you were familiar with it. What about this time around? Yeah, no, I've I've had this record for I don't know, fifteen plus years. Well, you um, never introduced it to me, so I blame you. How did I not do that? Actually, <laughs> I, I should have done that. Whatever. Huh. Oh, well, it was in my CD collection. You should have just grabbed it. Um, so this is a fantastic record. Uh, this is my my main takeaway from this, and I've always felt that this is. Um, you know, the best, at least I can't say that I know all the Paul McCartney and Lennon and Harrison albums, but this is of yeah. any ones that I have listened to. And even after listening to Ram, this is still my favorite. This is still the most consistent. This is a long album. Um, it's, it, it does, and it's made even longer when you listen to it on Spotify because they add like five tracks to it, which are not necessary. Five, four of them, I think are just like, other yeah, like versions of the same of songs that are on here. So when I listened mm -hmm. to it this time around, I was like, skip through those. That doesn't do anything for me. Mm -hmm. But this album is so long, but every, I, I, there's not a bad song on here, right? I could listen to this entire record. Um, even the instrumentals and the jams at the end, I really liked. It's kind of, I could see why some people might turn off after the second LP, mm -hmm. but, um, but I still like those. I like jamming up music. I think it's really good and, 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 and fun. Maybe Johnny's birthday is the only song on here. That's not really, but <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, he, he did that as like a goof for John on his 30th mm -hmm. birthday or whatever, you know? So that's not even like a real song and it's over after like a minute. 20 or something like that so um but just really good stuff this is really you know it really makes you figure like you could you could totally understand harrison's frustration being in the beatles he's got all this stuff that he's just accumulated over the years and mm -hmm. you know he would say later on i read that like you know you know he would just that mccartney and lennon had to not only like they had to like record four or five of their songs before they would even listen to one of Harrison's songs, you know? And, and I think that Harrison could totally make the argument that he had some clearly better songs and some of the stuff that made it onto the Lennon McCartney stuff that made it onto some Beatles records. But, um, uh, so you do have the Phil Spector wall of sound on here. I definitely noticed that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, several songs there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, stuff like what is life, um, wah, wah, um, you know, uh, what else is it? Let it down. It's just very, just like produced and lots of stuff. I didn't find it as annoying as I do with some of the other stuff that we might've listened to. Like the Ron Nets, I think is when I was particularly critical of the wall of sound. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe one of the reasons for that is because you're not hearing it on every track. You know, there's songs on here that are very, that are much more stripped down, more acoustic. Um, so it's not like, it's not, two hours of wall of sound it's wall of sound here a couple other songs there and then back to the wall of sound that type of thing so if you can mix it up like i'm fine with it you know yeah and i'm particularly fine with it if the songs are are really good which 
that's this is what they are. Um, it was interesting this time listening around now that I'm more familiar with Derek and the Dominoes when I hear a song like Wawa, that sounds like a song that could have been on Layla and other love assorted love songs. I'm like, that mm-hmm. sounds like a Layla song, you know. Um, but uh just you know he's got country stuff out here he's using the steel guitar which i always really liked um and uh he's steel I, guitar I, or slide guitar slide uh is there a uh, slide guitar probably yeah i think that's yeah slide guitar yeah, yeah thanks josh um so uh it doesn't and when you pose that essential question right a lot of the songs i threw away on this i was like that would not make it to a beatles album because of all the the religious overtones like there's mm-hmm. no way like lennon's <laughs> And its whole debut album was like, God doesn't exist or like, yeah. <laughs> you know, don't follow false idols or stuff like that. You know, so there's no like a lot of the religious undertones here. There's no way that would make it to a Beatles record. And I know that Harris, I did see that documentary. It's been many years. It was many years ago. But um, I do know Harrison was very much into his spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, this is like this is very um, uh it's very palpable on this record, right? It's, it's all over the place. And, you know, it's just a great, it's a great record. I'm, I'm so happy it exists. Um, you know, that he was able to get all this stuff out and, um, I'm glad that it was successful. You know, I always, I think George is my favorite Beatle in terms of personality wise. Like I think, I don't know, I Ringo would be fun to hang out with, but I think George is the most interesting, um, and, uh, you know, in, in some respects, uh, and I'm glad that he got his due with this record. Um, you know, but just a lot of upbeat stuff, a lot of catchy stuff, um, you know, some 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 more sentimental, quieter things, you know, the jams, just really so- long album, but I never get bored of it because it's just so freaking good, you know, mm-hmm. um, so big thumbs up for me. Uh, yeah, I love this album. All right. What about you, John? Yeah, I, I'm not a narrative guy. So I think the narrative of this album is always like, I think a lot of people connect with it because they're like, oh, George is, you know, this is the album where George broke, li-, and it's true. It's all true, right? But I yeah. try to appreci- like look at these as albums. And I've long, I, what I've thought about this album for a long time held up when I listened to this. This is an exceptional single, al- so single album, an excellent double album, and a very good triple album. Mm-hmm. And so it's the ultimate album for me is the question of, do you strip out the parts of a triple album and analyze it as a triple album or do you analyze it as what would be a single album in the context? And that's the hardest thing for me evaluating this because there's a ton of good songs on this album, enough to make this an excellent double album. I think it's... It's like gets a little bit of a pass, I think, because everybody loves the narrative that, you know, George Harrison just had this track of, you know, this collection of these, you know, tons of songs. And I get it. It's a compelling narrative and it's true. I think he would have been better served to edit a little bit. You know, he probably could have gotten two great solo albums out of this and prolonged his career instead of like sort of, you know, (laughs) blowing the proverbial wad like with this and then kind of releasing eh, more middling stuff the rest of the 70s, you know? I think it would have been interesting to see what that would have looked like. This is, as Matt said, absolutely, I hear the band is all over this. The band, the band, right? Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, that's the first thing that jumped to mind when I was listening to something. Oh, there's a lot of songs that would be like, in the basement tapes or on the band albums in this there's a cu- couple country songs that absolutely delve into the this the country type uh music that we were listening to at the end of the 60s and 70s that elements of crosby stills and nash are in this as matt mentioned um 
there's there's a Dylan song on this. In fact, once again, talk about like the consistent run of like songs on other albums that I like as the best yeah. song on an album <laughs> that Bob Dylan wrote, but I wouldn't like them nearly as much if Bob Dylan did them. Like there's no guy in history that wrote more great songs that other people perform as like A plus songs that for him would be like B songs. And this is no doubt. You know what I mean? Uh, and you know, uh, if not for you, right? That's the Dylan yeah. song, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. like, it's he, absolutely he also, he, a Dylan. He also co-wrote uh, I'd Have You Anytime. I'd Have so You Anytime. anytime. Yeah, that, yep. exactly. They're like, yep. they're Dylan songs. And, you know, and it's funny because George Harrison's an incredible writer too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just goes to show you how good Bob Dylan is that his songs stand out even on a George Harrison album, you know? And uh, yeah, it's just a lot of this stuff is like, this sounds like it could be a Beatles song. This sounds like it could be a band song. But that's a positive because that shows yeah. what an omnivore George Harrison is. And it shows why he was so popular with other artists, you know? Mm-hmm. There's a reason he was the Traveling Wilbury, right? You know, like he was the guy they plucked. Right. And, you know, that he could, you know, integrate himself so easily into like because he was recording with the the band at times. Right. You know, and jamming with. In fact, I think that's even what the Apple album was. Right. Basically just cast offs of him with those guys. Right. Yeah. And I I mean, and that is what that is. I I know Matt said, oh, I can listen to it. it. It was not necessary. I get why it's on here, <laughs> yeah. but it doesn't it doesn't add to the album for me. It adds thirty minutes, which I don't think do it do it a favor, you know? And so yeah. I could have done without that. But as a double album and in the totality of it, it's except it's an exceptional album. Um, the guitar sound on it is immaculate. The songwriting quality and the content of the lyrics are both excellent. Um, I think the Spectre stuff actually helps this album quite a bit. I think it focuses it. A little bit. I do like the wall of sound though, so it's a good marriage of clean production um, with really good musicians. I actually don't think it's as overproduced as much Phil, as some Phil Spector stuff is either. Mm-hmm. I think it's oh, able yeah. to kind of navigate well, that yeah. a little bit more. I know that Spector notoriously said that he thought like George Harrison was like an A plus songwriter and musician, but like not a great singer. And so, like, I think that informed sort of his view of how to produce this, too. Now, I don't know if I agree totally with that, but I see what he's saying if he's judging it by, you know, Paul and John and also, like, the, you know, the the girl groups he was producing, right? Mm-hmm. That were, yeah. So I get where he's coming from, but and yeah. Jo- and George was a, a co-producer on this album. Mm-hmm. So I think once Phil Spector dropped out for health reasons, I think George took over and that may be why it doesn't sound as well oh, of okay. sound. I think yeah, the marriage of both of them was good though, because yeah. I think George did need a little bit of like that production stuff. Cause it sounds really clean. You can hear the Spector songs too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Like, and probably the ones where Harrison took the lead and the ones where Phil Spector took the lead. They're pretty clear. Yeah. Um, yeah, overall, excellent album. It's it's going to be in the, the top quarter, certainly, of this decade of albums we cover. Um, very much, to me, sounds like the jangle. You know, I always say George Harrison sort of and the birds portend the jangle pop that would come, especially in the 80s and 90s, that I love. So, I mean, when I hear these albums, I'm like, there you go. There's the forefathers. So, so, so John, would you totally just cut it off? Like, if you could just, like, get rid of the total the Apple. I really, I really, really wish they... That? I really wish they would have cut that off and then mixed up some of the tracks from disc one, which I think is stronger than disc two with yeah, some of the tracks from disc yeah. two and released it as two separate 12 song albums. And okay. I think that would have, that would have made two exceptional albums or at worst two excellent albums. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that it was a little overindulgent, but it's so good in terms of most of the points that it can overcome it. But I do think it suffers yeah. a little bit from excess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Harrison considered the Apple Jam as kind of like a bonus. So I don't know. It's kind of like a 
bonus to the people who bought the album. So I, I, I don't know if you can consider it. You know, you yeah. can, it's you on the original. It's on the original release. It's on the original release. So you got to. It's talk like about the white. It. It's like the white album, though. Like we talked about that. You know, yeah. probably the Beatles should have released the white album as two different albums, and they have two, you know, exceptional, two great out, al- uh, you know, exceptional yeah. albums instead of just one that everybody has different opinions on because some people love it and some people think it's overstuffed. I well, feel that way about the white album i felt that way about this too well and can i make a hot maybe a hot take about like i think this is a more consistent album than the white album i agree that's that's the i mean i'm not saying it's better but it's more consistent there's not there's not filler in here there's not revolution nine stuff that you just skip through and like other songs are like ah it's okay like it's solid you're right john the first two the first two um records are just there's not a clunker on here you know yeah yeah i i agree i um I'm kind of in the same line with you guys. I thought this album was really good and it actually gets better the more I listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first album is the strongest by far. I think probably top to bottom, those are are the strongest tracks. Um, and all of my, almost all my favorite songs are on that first LP. And then it kind of yeah. gets a little weaker in the second. And then, and then Apple Jam is just a fun thing um, about it. I'm surprised that there wasn't more um, Indian sounding music and sitar on this in terms of just how much he was into being in India when they were in the Beatles and and learning the sitar and his relationship with Ravi Shankar and all of that. He he really didn't incorporate that into this album at all. Right. There's no sitar at all. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. Um, So I found that surprising. Um, Do you think that's because he got a lot of those songs on Beatles albums? And then this was the stuff that didn't have that. And it's like, Oh, I've got these songs too, that are more influenced by, that you know, and American music, that and British maybe, and American music. Maybe he put the stuff on Wonderwall that he wanted to play the sitar oh, on or incorporate. Yep. Um, I, I'm just guessing. I don't know. But um, the other thing, yeah, it's it's really great. I think it really highlights what's special about George. I really there's really a lot of catchy songs on this album. My Sweet Lord is is super catchy, and I mean, every I think a lot of people would recognize that song if they didn't yeah. know it was George Harrison's song. And and even what is my life, which I think is my favorite song on the album, um, you definitely get the themes of of his spirituality and then his relationships and and love and and all the things that really were important to him on this album. I didn't mind the wall of sound um, either. I thought it worked, especially on songs like Wawa. You can just get the energy from that and and hear all the different things and instruments on it um you got harmonica on this album i don't know who played the harmonica if he did or not but and then you've got his his classic like slide guitar and and country sounds and i mean it really everything is on this album there's something for everyone um you get a song about eric clapton's dog i remember jeep i mean so what do you what do you <laughs> what more could you want from uh i mean it's just kind of remarkable to have i know i agree with johnny probably should have split it up but to have like the creative drive and artistic drive just to want to like get all of this out and and make an album on your own and on your own terms and just put everything that you've been working on forever i could i could see how you'd want to just release it all and kind of release yeah that kind of uh, you know psychically or or something like that um philosophically you, you know what's funny like um and i say this 
as someone who is pretty outspoken about the fact that I think the George songs on Beatles albums are the most consistent because basically what got on, but there's been an interesting revisiting of like the Beatles where people still say George is my favorite Beatle as if it's like an opinion that people don't have yet. You hear it all the time. So it's not even an unusual. And I, can I give a hot take? He's not the most interesting Beatle. John Lennon and Paul McCartney are still the most interesting Beatles. It's just people don't want to say that because it seems like the right answer. And so it's kind of become convenient for a lot of people to say George Harrison is. And while there's elements of his story that's interesting, and I get why, especially those that are introverted or feel like that they are not as demonstrative, like can relate to him. Like, can I hot take it on my end of things? Like John Lennon and Paul McCartney are still more interesting. And just because they were the creative forces of the Beatles and stuff, I, d- I just think it's weird that people still preface that all the time. Like, you know, I hear more people say George is my favorite Beatle than any other Beatle, which is, I get, but it's weird to me. And I think it's like a revisionist thinking of it that yeah. like you kind of say it as like a hot take, but it isn't a hot take anymore. It's the most common take. So let me just stake out to me, John Lennon's the most interesting Beatle, Paul McCartney's the second most interesting Beatle, and George Harrison's the third most interesting Beatle. They're all fascinating people though. And Ringo too. So like I'll say all of it, but like I just want to go on the record and say, no matter how many times people say that to me, I still think that the two main Beatles are still the main Beatles for a reason. Yeah, and I, tape. I would, I would say that, um, I, I totally see what you're saying. To me, one of the reasons that I say that George Harrison, it, George Harrison is the the most interesting, is just because he doesn't get he's he's always to the side. Like I obviously know that Lennon McCarty yeah. are interesting, fascinating people, and and Harrison's story, like especially after listening to the, the documentary and all the stuff that like you know that really made him as a person, it's just something that to me always got kind of pushed to the side. And as I as I grew up learning about the Beatles, it was always Lennon and McCartney. I always knew about that, read about them, like knew about their stuff. And Harrison was always to the side. And it's almost one of those things where like it's like icing on the cake that you learn that there's this whole other dude out there that just yeah. had all these other great songs and had this whole other life and was much and was quieter and more subdued about it and kind of just you know um it floated by and yeah it's it's and I, yes john lennon is probably the most interesting person right because he's just his his story is 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 pretty much crazy like especially when you like go back to his childhood and like mm-hmm. what he went through and if you read any of it of his interviews he's like an insane person right so he he has to be the most interesting but george harrison since nobody really nobody talked about him at least in my experience i didn't really know as much about him as i got to know more i was just like holy crap i totally missed out on that and it's almost like yeah. that overcompensated for the fact, you know what I mean? So like that became something that I'm like, wow, there's this whole other person that's way more likable. Like when you read about Lennon McCartney, they're we're very likable people. Yeah. You know? Well, it's, he, yeah, um, I agree. He, I agree. Harrison is the underdog choice or yes. the hi- hipster choice, right? He's like the, the little kid brother that gets forgotten about and everyone after right. the fact is like, he, uh, he's actually like the cool one or whatever. Right. Well, and it's also like, it's you, you don't, pick, even though probably Ringo, is the most yeah. likable if you answer for real, right? Yeah. I mean, we even within the Beatles, they admit it. It'd be but Ringo. it's not hang out with Ringo. Yeah, it's not cool though to say that, right? Because right. Ringo's too lightweight. So Harrison gives you an interesting path between well, John and Paul yep. kind of seem like assholes, and George Harrison <laughs> kind of was an asshole too when you look yeah. at his life. Yeah. But it's like oh, but he's a quiet asshole. So and like I get it, you know, and it's like. They're all creative, fascinating people, and I love the gray in it. So I don't mean yeah. to pick on it, but I just I think it's very interesting that it's become like the answer to give is that because you know John and Paul 
are defined as assholes. And I'm like, well, they are, but, you know, George had his issues, you know. And, George, you know, Ringo's probably nicer, but he's not serious. But it's like, oh, well, Ringo was pretty talented himself. I mean, I don't know. Like, I know the drums, and, you know, she loves you. You know, not everybody can play the drum and drums and she loves you. You know what I mean? So it's, mm-hmm. I just think it's always interesting in that sense. But I don't mean to deviate too much because I want to keep this on George Harrison and the awesome well, double wonder, album yeah. he made and too, pretty good triple album yeah i wonder too if it has to do with the fact that his career extended so far past the beatles right i mean he had multiple think, albums he had the the traveling uh willbies he was Wilburys. doing all wilburys doing all sorts of other things and you know obviously john was was killed and and paul's still going and ringo's still going but um I think Ringo's, it's also, Ringo's playing casinos. Ringo's like yeah. Ringo's like at Mohegan Sun playing like. You know. <laughs> it's also though. It's it's very like you saw the description of like Paul McCartney's album, right? Like both mm-hmm. on both ends, and I was like, none of these are this album. You know what I mean? It's yeah. kind of funny. And I think music critics, it's very easy for music critics to relate to George Harrison because there's a smoldering anger in music critics a lot of times that they do with their pen, but then in real life, like they just you know. You don't become a music critic because you were the cool kid, right? The cool kid starts the band or played quarterback, right? You know, you were kind of always on the fringes. And, like, I always thought George represented that. Like, and, you know, John, you know, Paul was too mainstream, right? And John was too, you know, angry and, like, outspoken, you know what I mean? And a lot of these people who weren't as outspoken and didn't, you know, adjust as much, it's like, George, he's my guy. And, oh, and Ringo is too, un, you know, in their mind, uncool, although I would always argue that Ringo was a lot cooler than a lot of these people were. So, yeah, yeah I John, think that's what it is, too. John, yeah. John the cool kid in, uh, in school was also the one that did the backstroke on the swim team. So, oh, that, that, cool, was, that was a cool the, kid too. The cool kid in school was Mick Jagger, right? Who we're going to talk about here in a second. We're going to talk oh, about yeah. where, where that's a different, you know, vibe. Can I just say to too? Uh, there's great guitar riffs on here, and I don't oh, know if yeah. Harrison's doing mm-hmm. that or if Clapton's doing. Like, who's responsible for the real good? Because they're both good guitar. I mean, I know Clapton's yeah. better, but it's I, yes is the answer to that question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> both. But yeah. there's there's great guitar riffs on here, and I also see Josh that Peter Frampton played on this album. Yep. As did Alan White, who we talked about last or yeah, a the couple weeks ago. Drummer who, of Yes. Of Yes, who also played with the mm-hmm. uh, Plastic Ono band. So yeah, uh, he's one of the people I left off the, the long list. It's it's interesting <laughs> it's interesting that like Lennon and McCartney both kind of like went to like same or not Lennon and Harrison went back to like former Beatles and similar guys and McCartney's mm-hmm. like, nah, screw it. I'm totally forget all that, doing my own thing, own guys, yeah. you know. So Well, yeah. even even with Spectre that Lennon yeah. Harrison oh, right. used them well, well, and McCartney wrote him a strongly worded yeah. passive aggressive letter. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, th- I think that's a tribute. Well, I don't know as much obviously about McCartney and Lennon, but I think George seemed much more collaborative and interested in other people's other artists music and like hanging out and, and just making music in general. So yeah. Maybe that can contribute to that. McCartney's had that ethos though, for a lot of his career, hmm. you know, especially yeah. later in his career, he's yeah. been very big on collaborating. Gotcha. I can understand not wanting to do that after, you know, your first album out, too. After Yeah, McCartney was... played with Kanye, didn't he? Yes. He did. Fam- and famously <laughs> with Michael Jackson, too. And there, there was like, and <laughs> that didn't work the, out well. And, and then all the Kanye fans were like, who's Paul McCartney? Yeah. Not all. A, a small, loud subset. Some of them but I think most, And then it, yeah. then it blew up on the, the Twittersphere. Mm-hmm. So, 
our review is done. All things must pass. Now we are going to go on to the Rolling Stones. All right. So I'm going to do very limited bio because I want to get to the album and that's kind of my jam as well. But let's do numbers, first numbers guy, and then I'll introduce the songs and the montage in the front. Okay, so this cracks the top 20, number 17 in the 1970s on Best Ever Albums, number 4 in 1971, number 59 overall, and in Rolling Stone, it just missed the top 100. It's 104 in the Rolling Stone list. Gotcha. And you, you of course, had to hear Bitch in the opening montage because you had to hear Bitch in the opening montage. And now we're going to play Dead Flowers uh, before this segment. All right, so we're going to do, we did Let It Bleed, you know, before this. We're going to do Exile after this. Later on, we're going to do Some Girls. So I'm going to kind of curb all but the most essential part of the Sticky Fingers bio. So here we go. This is the ninth British album and the 11th American album by the Stones. There's a story as to why there's a couple more American albums that ties into Mr. Klein, who we mentioned before, Alan Klein. And we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, This is the first album on their new label, Rolling Stone Records, after leaving what famous record label, guys, that they'd been on for years? Columbia. Oh, no. Come on, guys. No. Decca. They were on Decca. They were famous for kind of being the, the signature act on Decca with their crazy manager uh andrew oldham (laughs) who you know had uh basically left uh had been fired by the band in uh 68 and been replaced by alan klein Um, 16 year old wasn't he like super yes he was like yeah he's super young remember his mom had to co-sign uh the the (laughs) band act stuff like that (laughs) so yeah so this is the first stones album to reach number one in both the uk and the u.s charts and it's been certified triple platinum it also featured uh, a number one single in Brown Sugar. So here are side, sort of the bullet points that I will mention between Let It Bleed and this album. The first to know is this is uh, Mick Taylor's first album, uh, live, uh, studio album. He's on the live album Get Your Yaya's Out, which is between Let It Bleed and this. Um, uh, but this is the first one. Uh, he replaced Brian Jones, who died um, you know, shortly uh, er, er, in 1969. Uh, um, uh, drowning and at 27, so young. Uh, so Mick, Mick Taylor's sound is all over this album, um, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, when we analyze this album. But yes, he has a very distinctive sound, and he is not a long-termer for the Stones as well. He's he's left by uh, the late 70s as well, which we'll talk about as we get to Some Girls, um, which is the album... Uh, after he leaves. Uh, Leading up to this album, the Stones found out that their, at this time, former manager, Alan Klein, had sort of hoodwinked them and signed over their entire 1960s American copyrights to his new new company, ABKCO. So the band was understandably infuriated by this, uh, and they found out that's why there were all of these uh, American albums that were released, that they were not sure why there was an American version and a British version, right? And some live albums. Well, it turns out that on the 
slide, Mr. Klein was getting some some cash in his pocket. So they sued him for years unsuccessfully and then finally settled in 1984, but they did not make peace with him. It was contentious along the way. Um, things were not quite as contentious with DECA, but there still was a point of contention, which was that they owed them one more single, according to DECA. And apparently this was true. The Stones did not love that. Um, and eventually that song became Street Fighting Man um, as the final single. So not a bad way for DECA to go out. But the band, sort of to be cheeky, submitted a song called Cocksucker Blues, uh, <laughs> knowing that they would not be able to uh, release that. And it was certainly, you know, it could be both a euphemism and literal, depending on how you chose to read it. But that was the choice they made, which is quintessential Stones, I thought, which was kind of funny. There's also but, a famous uh, a movie called Cocksucker Blues about them. There you go. And so that that was where that comes from. That that was the track that they gave Deco on their way out as sort of a kiss off. So or or something else off. Um, four of the tracks from this album were actually recorded during the Let It Bleed sessions. That was Brown Sugar, You Gotta Move, Wild Horses and Sister Morphine. And they actually during the sessions for this album, where the rest of the album was recorded, uh, actually uh, recorded a lot of the songs that would end up on Exile on Main Street, which is not quite as long as All Things Must Pass, but is a double a double album of its own. Which when we get to it, so be prepared, uh, Josh. Um, yeah, so that's a little bit of the background. The other two things that people always talk about about this was that the cover was actually an Andy Warhol piece designed by his group of artists called The Collective. The original one was the same picture of the tight jeans with the fly open to the fabric, but it was actually a real working zipper. <laughs> and Mick Jagger loved this idea. However, the zipper was damaging the vinyl records, and they had to basically move it to just a picture instead, which is the much-talked-about picture on the front of this album, which is basically a pair of tight jeans, provocatively uh, unzipped a little bit, with a very clear um, outline of a um, phallic uh, inside the pants. Uh, it has never been known who it was. Uh, they think it could be Andy Warhol's boyfriend at the time, or the brother of his boyfriend, or some models that were around. The one thing that has been verified, though, is it is not Mick Jagger, as was rumored for years. That is not who it was. Everybody um, has confirmed that. The other thing that came out of this was that this was the first album to feature the tongue and lips logo that the Rolling Stones are most oh, known okay. for. It was huh. a suggestion by Mick Jagger, who told them to model it on the outstuck tongue of the Hindu goddess I believe Kali is the name of it, K-A-L-I. Mm -hmm. um, and at first, um, they were not going to do it because they thought it was too much of a vestige of the 60s, right? Like, you know, mysticism and Indian mysticism. But then when they saw the picture, they're like, yeah, this fits. And wow. sure enough, well, because Mick Jagger, right? And you well, look like at Mick Jagger. And, yeah. It's also like the one of, if not the most iconic symbol yes. of rock, rock and roll. You know, that's yeah. just... I would yeah. argue, yes, that they're... It's like the McDonald's Mc archers. Yeah, Mick Jagger's instincts were very much right on this. So this album was basically considered to be a back-to-basics one with little experimentation like you heard in Aftermath and Let It Bleed and some of the album and you know their satanic majesties and stuff when they were playing around with stuff. This is just considered and was designed to be a blues album. Um, it features all of the normal players for the Stones. It's got, at various times, Billy Preston and Ian Stewart, who's as we know, is the 
the member of the band. Remember, he's basically considered a member of the band, but uncredited because of the aesthetics. Um, Nicky Hopkins and uh, Jack Nietzsche, and then Bobby Keys on the sax, so who have been around the Stones for forever. And yeah, and that's it. I think I'm going to leave there, and let's talk about this album, because I'm interested to hear your takes on this. Matt, let's start with you. Thoughts on Sticky Fingers? So... Actually, is it, is it Josh? I think it's Josh's turn to go first. It's okay. Okay, we'll go. Josh, Josh I'll go, go first. first. Josh, this album first. is awesome. How can, <laughs> <you> not, <laughs> how can you not love this album? This is like the tightest the Stones ever are. Every track on this album is amazing. It it rolls by. They've got like five or six amazing hit songs on here, which is incredible in its own right. You hear one song and then the next song, you're like, oh my God, this is awesome too. And then you go on to like, can't you hear me knocking? You're like, oh my God, this is awesome. And and yeah, this is the, I mean, does it get better than this on the Stones? This is probably the, one of their most famous albums and probably one of their most like best track to track albums that there is. So at least for me, um, the thing I noticed on this album uh, or this listen through this time around was how much the horns play a role in the album and how great they are, especially on like Brown Sugar and, and Bitch. And the riffs are great on this album, um, also in Bitch. Um, I noticed some strings and things like Moonlight Mile. Um, and I think the Stones are really good at putting these things in the background or adding to their kind of blues rock as- aesthetic. And that, and that really like... It, elevates the album to another level when you're listening to it on can't you hear me knocking did you guys hear kind of the santana sounding interlude this time around before they got the they got the like the the what is it the not the congas but like the the kind of the percussion instrument what is that like the blocks or whatever yeah Mm -hmm. no it's the it's the congas I'm thinking of those things where you hold like the you hold the wooden part and you clack it on the other one. It's anyway. Like if you're in elementary school. Yes, totally. The (laughs) elementary school percussion instrument that sounds like Santana. Yeah, Um, that that was a long interlude in the middle of that song, and and the guitar during that part also reminded me of Santana. Um, It's just it's just kind of essential stones. I know it's it's not something new to say, but you hear all of the great blues riffs and guitar parts that they bring and then they just add that extra special rolling stones magic to the album and it's there's not a bad song on here the uh, i think mick jagger's singing is great on this um i don't think he gets enough credit for for what you know the lead i mean he gets enough credit but <laughs> it's, it's 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 he's good on this album and well he writes all the songs too remember that's yeah. something that i think people forget about the stones that he's the lyricist so yeah yep you get a lot of uh drug drug themes on especially like sister morphine and... <laughs> on all the tracks drug <laughs> yeah. themes by the way yeah. drugs and sex is the theme of this album that's true and what else is there that's all i got right now what do you what do you got matt so first of all, what is your background? Because it looks like you're on Tatooine right now. Oh, I don't understand the significance it's of that. Buster Keaton rolling from stones, running away from. Oh God! Stones. Wow, so. Jack just making me think <laughs> on his Zoom background. Yeah. Okay. Um, secondly, uh, I have to give props to my mom. I do remember the because she had a copy of this, and it was the zippered copy. Oh wow! Um, okay. And so when you unzip, I remember this. You unzip the copy, and he opened it up, and it's the dude's got it. You see his underwear. 
So it doesn't. <laughs> so for those of you, you're not getting the Lenny Kravitz experience. You're getting this the underwear. Uh, so I have to say that go. I, I've this is the first Stones album that I ever owned, and it's the only. It's the first Stones album that I really knew. I think I got it back in college, uh, uh, like '98 or something like that. Uh, I, I liked it pretty much right away, and um, I, I I think going into this, I've, I've always known that this is my favorite Stones album, and I think this week listening to it, and upon further reflection, this is like a this is like a desert al- island album for me. This is like yeah. this is a perfect album. Okay, like I and I there is nothing wrong with this album for me. This is this is hitting all the areas that it needs to hit. You've got straight up rock and roll bangers, some of the best rock and roll songs you'll ever hear in Brown Sugar and Bitch, that riff and bitch. Dude, I don't know dude, if rock and roll gets better than that. Dude. I mean, I don't like fine. That's better to me. That's better than satisfaction. That's better than anything that Guns N' Roses ever did or any of the like the heavy hitters in rock and roll. Like as far as I'm concerned, like that, that might be my favorite rock and roll song ever. It's so good. And the, the little part that the icing on the cake is the like that part so good such a great song um and then you've got slower songs you've got kind of like a more sentimental kind of like ballad and something like wild horses you've got more of a dirty blues song in something like i've got the blues um you've or you've got to move um that's you've got to move is what i meant there um and you've got like sister morphine which is this jar kind of like really as druggy of a song as you can Mm -hmm. get with really great chord progressions really great minor keys cool cool sounding uh you know progression through that song and you've got as john i think you've mentioned this before dead flowers which might be the ultimate alt alt country or you know country rock song of all time and you've got moonlight mile which is just this really this is like the I guess is produced as this record as this album gets with that, but it's really done well with the orchestration and the way that it builds. I love this album. There's no way this is not making the top 10 in this decade. This might make the top 10 in the entire podcast that we're doing. (laughs) I, this album is fantastic. Nothing like that's, I was just sitting here listening to this going, I, I don't know why this wouldn't be in that realm for me. This is a fantastic record. I do like exile on main street to me. And I'm going to be interested to listen to that again when we come to it. And we, we cover that album. Uh, it's, it's a little bit long is my memory, but this is just Mm -hmm. like one, song after the other so good this is vintage stones um and and mick taylor i don't know if it's i don't know how much of this is is him i mean this is it's not like they're deviating all that much from anything that they've done before i just think that they're clicking on all cylinders you know hitting on all cylinders here and uh yeah i i i this is a fantastic record moonlight miles such a great ending song too it just kind of sums up everything Oh, and I also have to say, my brother would always text me, he goes, he was listening to this this week, and he goes, I think Can't You Hear Me Knocking, the first 30 seconds of that might be my favorite opening 30 <laughs> seconds of ever. What, and, and I would listen, I'm like, yeah, he's not terribly wrong there, because that's a great opening, that guitar riff and the way that the drums kick in and stuff, and, and mm-hmm. Mick Jagger's voice, so good, so good. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you guys know how I feel about this <laughs> album. I mean, I love this. I, I, I can't. This would be on my chart 60 out of 60, except I don't love You Gotta Move. Um, I think it's, I hate the placement of it. It's the only song on this album I don't love. Mm. I do, there's about a five minute period of the album that I wish I could excise. And that's, I think Can't You Hear Me Knocking goes about 
a minute and a half too long uh-huh. and you got to move does nothing. If you take that away, this is 60 out of 60 because everything else is mm-hmm. pretty much perfect. I think we talked about – so let me start by saying this is my favorite Stones lineup. By far, I think the combination of Mick Taylor and Keith Richards together and the albums they make is the best Stones combo to just absolute fire guitarists, you know, almost playing like double lead just in different parts. Um, you know, you got Wyman on the bass, Watts on the drums, and then Mick Jagger singing. So this is part of that like period where the Stones can do no wrong for me. I think the Stones have kind of been lost in history a little bit because they're not innovators. They're just a rock band that does rock staples like playing bluesy rock and riffs and stagecraft like really well so it's not sexy to kind of um you know list them as one of the most important bands because they weren't necessarily you know musically sonically trendsetters they just did the sound better than almost anybody else i mean they were forerunners in terms of image and stagecraft and shows and stuff i mean if you see you know, the tours they did in 68, 69, and 70, right? They're ahead of their yeah. time. You know, that we talked about that in Let It Bleed, right? They're yeah. basically redoing it. And, I mean, you, you hear the stories. And one of you guys bought me that book on the Stones. I can't remember who for my birthday one year, but thank you for that. But it talked about their shows and how they'd show up and they wouldn't do any encores, right? And they'd start the show with Bitch. And they just come out and they just that riff would start. And it's like, yeah, that's the ultimate show starting song. You know what I mean? It's like you can't have a better opening song for a concert to set the table. Right. It's like perfect. And I think because of that, the Stones kind of get lost in history a little bit as a great band, which almost sounds weird to say. But I think their image hasn't carried as much as you think it would. And this is the type of album that it's like everybody should listen to to be reminded of why the Stones are the stones for God's sakes, you know, not the parody kind of, you know, getting older stones, like just the coolest rock Mm -hmm. band that ever existed, you know, in their era, you know, and that's what this album is. It's just lean guitar riffs, bluesy riffs, edgy, effortlessly edgy, not trying to be edgy. It's just effortlessly edgy because these are cool people doing cool things. Um, Another thing to keep in mind is this is where the beginning of the Stones deviation that ultimately strained them in the 70s and 80s comes from because Mick Jagger gets married to Bianca Jagger in 1970 and becomes like an A-list celebrity, right? He's trying to basically transcend the rock world and become a celebrity, right? Like cultural icon. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, um, Keith Richards is like slumming it with Graham Parsons doing, you know, shit tons of drugs and, you know, alcohol and just basically, you know, kind of becoming you know, a borderline junkie, right, during this time. But that's where this, like, country sound comes yeah. from, you yeah. know. And, and the addition of Mick Jagger, and I like Brian Jones, right? I thought he added quite a bit, um, especially later in it. You know, Aftermath in particular is his finest moment. But the addition of Mick Taylor and to, to Keith Richards' sound is what, to me, is the quintessential Stones sound. And Josh mentioned this is when they're tightest. It's funny, like, the Stones managed to be both tight and completely loose at the same time. You know, they have the blues looseness, mm-hmm. but they play they play blues tight, which is almost like oxymoronic, but that's what makes the Stones the Stones, right? That they can do a tight blues sound. It's crazy, but that's what this album is. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, on my chart, I ranked this as a 58 out of 60. It's the highest album I've ranked so far. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it's nearly a perfect album. I totally could understand if somebody ranked it as a... As an album, I gave the reason why I didn't consider it to be a perfect album, but that's a pittance, you know, compared to what the rest of this album is. 
highest recommend I can give. It's it's rock and roll at its best form. I think the other thing I want to mention, guys, is that I think the Stones kind of also have declined a little bit in terms of prestige because they're not a very politically correct band and i don't want to go into that area but like you know sticky fingers right (laughs) we we know what that's about you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. putting a thing they're unabashedly like uncomfortably visceral you know in a way that i don't think people like bands to be anymore and when you go back and hear this i think it's a little bit of a shame because this is now another there's albums we've been covering, right, that you just can't see released in the modern landscape, like that Serge Gainsbourg album and this one. And we pretty much all agree that these albums are awesome. And so I just wonder a little bit if, like, we need to kind of get back to a little bit of, like, music as a device to make you uncomfortable uh, at times, you know, God, like when done right. Yeah. I, I hope not. I mean, okay, like get over it like this is just great music you know like yeah. but could you see even, somebody it's not, releasing it's this now that, but it's not even that bad right like if you look at like some stuff that's been done over the last 10 15 20 years there's way more like like over right, but you, stuff you, than this and like people that are gonna get like all bent out of shape because like it's called sticky fingers or because the song well, is called bitch it's like well they'd say it's, it's misogynistic or brown sugar is culturally appropriate about you know basically brown yeah. sugar is about about not just having sex with but like having like you know visceral sex with you know a a black woman you know yeah. and I could see I, you know what I mean and like I don't know how how many bands would write a song like that as yeah. from the perspective of a white guy nowadays and no, I, you that's know true. and, yeah, and right. is it a bad thing or a good thing, I can't say, but you just know that no one would write that song now. And that's well, why I think the Stones kind of ascend it, because who's going to be the Stones yeah. in this era? The last, like, cool band like this was, like, The Strokes, right? And even they kind of fell off the track. But, I mean, The Strokes kind of were doing the Velvet Underground mixed with, like, The, yeah, the Stones here. they kind of had a different vibe, too. Yeah. Students. Yeah, I and that's and maybe that's where like the, the like I totally could get past the lyrics cuz I'm not even like th- when I hear brown sugar or when I hear, you know, bitch, I'm not thinking about I am list- I am 100% locked in on the riff, on the music and like how I feel about it, you know. Yeah. So I I I see what you're saying, but like I I don't know. I hope that people don't overlook this because it's just like oh this is so rock and roll doesn't get any better than this. Like I I don't think it does, you know. Like I I, I don't um yeah, yeah this song this album makes you move too i was i was mm-hmm. definitely like as soon as you start hearing the opening riffs of brown sugar you you want to start dancing also we it's haven't kind even of, mentioned wild horses which is an yeah, awesome ballad that's what yeah. i was gonna bring up it's such like a, an amazing the fact that they can do this kind of amazing lovely heart you know heartful ballad um along with all alongside all these other songs is pretty incredible and they'd continue that and shout out to my friends jeff and steve because we've spent many a night driving home imitating mick jagger singing angie (laughs) so which is to be an extension of that so yes and that's you know that's the cool thing you can have brown sugar and then two songs later you could try to do mick jagger voice on a ballot in wild Mm -hmm. horses and then get basically you know a, a, a true blues song you know, and, and a slow rambling blues song like "You Got to Move," and then "Dead Flowers," which is yeah, alt country. When they they nailed it, 
best. You yeah, know? I think and they so, really yeah. did. Yeah. And I would say too, I, I get why you say why you're going to knock this a couple of points, John, because of those two things. I mean, for me, you know, I, I'm okay with long, longer songs. Um, I, I like what they do with Can't You Hear Me Knocking. It's kind of, it, it's, you know, and again, they're only doing it once. It's not like they're doing it every song, but they do kind of, kind of take it into this longer jam and I like it. So I'm totally fine with that. It's, it's, it kind of is, is a unique song in that regard. You got to move is, is, I think that that one would stand out to be the most quote unquote, I don't want to say unpleasant, but like the, 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 the lowest quality song because it's, it's almost, well, it's, 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 it's a cover, right? I mean, that's not, yeah. that's yeah. So, um, but it's kind of like a lo-fi. They're kind of, I don't, it, they're not, they're not goofing around, but you can tell that they're, it's not as, maybe it's not of a serious um, type of song. Maybe as the other ones that they're doing. I, I don't know the best wording for it, but like, I still think it sounds great. The lo-fi sound to it. It's just, it's a dirtier kind of mm-hmm. raunchier song, like uh, sonically it's, anyway. Um, I always considered it like the drugs they did before they got the high, which led into bitch. I feel like that's what it is, okay. right? Like it's basically that sound of it. That song sounds like drugs, right? Like doing it and you know getting high, and then that song kind of is the interlude. And then after it, it's like, woo, yeah. got my high now, and now we're gonna do bitch. But it's I always still... felt sort of like that's what the the vibe is with that. Yeah, yeah. And I would say that it's still to me, it's still catchy, right? Even though it's not as like I'm not gonna say it's as good as all the other songs on it, but it's still a I still like well, it a lot. You know, I I think I don't mind the placement of it. I think it actually, and I I agree. I think that actually the way that it ends and leads into bitch it's like a perfect boom like getting you going again you know um so i i i love the placement of all the songs i just yeah but i i get what you're saying and i'm not gonna you know well and i mean mick jagger is clearly singing as a black man on that track by the way too he's literally trying Mm. to sing like an old school southern you know blues singer you know and once again like who would try that in today's day and age would anybody you know and and like the question is should they or should they you know like i think it's a question to be asked but that's like the thing that comes to me it's like i don't know if you can release this album nowadays and i don't know how i feel about that you know it's i i I don't mean to go down that road but i'd be interested to hear listener feedback on that Mm. too you know can somebody release this album right now or would people say it's problematic (laughs) So I I see what you're saying. I just think that the the, the way that music has progressed and how like in in different all different kinds of genres, how explicit music has gotten to me, this this seems like, you know, this doesn't seem as big of a of of a stretch as some of the other albums that have gotten radio play that have gotten play on MTV or, you know, music videos, YouTube or whatever. Like, I think music's gotten way more explicit over the years. Um, so I, I, I don't think that this is that offensive and I'd be, I'd be shocked if there was like a big backlash against this album when it's just like, there's so many other examples of things to me anyway, right. that I think are way more explicit um, yeah, like, about like drugs what? or sex or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It's like, I, <laughs> so, um, that, that to me would be a stretch. Um, I don't know. Maybe you've read some things or heard some things that I haven't, but um, I I hope not because it, it it doesn't it doesn't seem to me. I, I don't know. People think take things differently, but uh, I haven't. Uh, I think it's like people look at the Stones as of their era, and you kind of have to. But I just th- think it's interesting because it's. It's like you'd love to hear more music like this. And the Stones were so reflective of that blues sound. And I think the other, other thing that stands out to me, and probably my last comment, is at the time when the Stones were doing this, tons of people were doing this, but the Stones did it better than anybody else. Now, this you know what I mean? People don't make this type of blues yes. drip, dripping rock. They're either do I mean, they do, but it's... 
even those acts are well it's like you know um gary clark jr right you know uh or um uh i'm totally blank uh Clark Jr., right? The the yeah. guitarist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, Gary Clark Jr., right? It's yep. like he's he's doing that, but you know, he's he can't be any younger than mid forties, right? Um, you know, and so you just don't see people doing this type of blues music in the mainstream anymore. It kinda like fell off and so much yeah. music in this era was influenced by that sound. Um, you know, so many albums we've done in the last couple of weeks. So um, well, music, yeah. music's progressed, and I would say that, yes, I, I, I think that's certainly a conversation. We can and in a good way, project. in a good way. Yeah, not and in a bad way. Yeah, yeah, but it, but it's it's noticeable, right? If you look at what's at the top of the charts, you know, there's no, there's no, there's, first of all, it's it, there's all single artists. It's all like one person. Yeah. There's no bands, right? Let alone rock bands or blues bands. This is not something that's making the, it's, they're still out there, right? There's still bands and, and musicians that are doing this stuff, but they're playing small clubs and they are not selling tons of albums. You know, it's just, I would say that that's more of a, just a natural progression of, of music and how it's gone and what's popular on the charts now, as opposed to like the message or the image more so than anything. It's just like a, you know, it's a progression of music. It's just, how it's going um you know mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i shift, mean shifting trends in the music yeah i'm sure yeah and i'm around at some point and i'm not a person that this is better or worse in fact i'm i think i bang the drum as much as anybody for modern music and <laughs> if you look at our twitter account just the other day right but it is very interesting to see that this was very much in the mainstream there and you just don't see albums no, like this nowadays not at all and so it just shows how music can change and you know has its ebbs and flows so um i hope that some people are taking notes and, you know, get a little bit of the vibe of uh, the Stones. Maybe if it even's just wanting to be a rock star, you know, or that kind of image. I'd like to see a few more rock stars in the world. The I world's mean, this, more interesting. Also, yeah. this album is 50 years old this year. So That's like, crazy. How, I, so what is, you know, 30 years from now, some some teenagers going to be like, Oh, the Rolling Stones, they're so awesome. And then they will be like a blues revival or something. <laughs> that's my, that's my hope at least. Yeah. Yeah. And I would also have to say, remember, I, I think I showed you guys like uh, my brother got me that 1971 book that I've been reading um, on the oh, yeah. cover. I think I showed I, I took a picture and sent a, a picture of the cover to you and the, on the cover of that picture, um, uh, of that of that book is uh it's uh, in a it's almost like yeah like a hotel room i think john made the comment that it looked like a sex mansion but it was uh it was keith richards and graham parsons uh that was that was the oh, other nice. that was the, there was the people on the cover of that of, of that uh book so yeah i think that's as good a place to start as any like you know run over grandma to get this album i think is the yeah. take of of all three of us right here it's a mm-hmm. fen- phenomenal album probably one of the easiest ones to recommend that we've done Definitely. uh and I think that that's probably as good a place to, to stop as any. Let's billboard a little bit for next week as well. Um, I'm going to be doing Hunky Dory by David Bowie next week. Um, Josh, do you know what you're doing next week? I have it written down just in he, case you don't know. Mm-hmm. Yep, After the Gold Rush by Neil mm-hmm. Young. Our second Neil Young album. Mm-hmm. Well, unless you count Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, then it's yeah. third, right? Okay, and Matt, how about you? I'm going to do some rock and roll flute with Jethro Tull. <laughs> hey, Aqualung. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. Aqualung. That's right. Yeah. Our, uh, our first uh, foray into Jethro Tull, our second foray into David Bowie, and our second or third into Neil Young, depending on where it is. So, And, and our continuing journey into... Uh to prog rock right <laughs> jethro tull yeah know. although this this one's always like they don't know if this is considered true prog rock yet right it's the next album that's mm, the, the okay. jethro tull i'll let you know in my research josh yeah okay good something to look forward to for next week so for josh and matt this is john signing off 
Have a wonderful evening and a better tomorrow. The Coming to Stacks podcast is hosted by John, Josh, and Matt, who thank you as always for listening to the show. We'd like to thank our podcast host, Anchor, for hosting our full archive of shows. We'd also like to thank CleanFeed for providing our audio and Audacity for providing the editing software we use for the creation of the show. Coming to Stacks can be found on the following 10 platforms and counting. Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, and Verbal. Viewer feedback can be sent to comingthestacks at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at ComingThe, and on YouTube by searching for Coming the Stacks and throwing us a follow. A website is coming on May 1st, 2021, and we'll make sure to let you know where to go.